Well, this morning, we're going to continue the series I started last time, Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire, um, looking at lies that we hear in the world around us, all different kinds of lies. And we had the opportunity last time to introduce the series. So last time, I hit these three points, how important is the truth, who is lying to you, and how do we combat these lies? And with that, we saw that the truth is immensely important for us as believers. We must hold to the truth. We serve a God of truth. God is all truth, and there is no lying in him. Christ is the embodiment of truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. So we serve a God of truth. We are the people of the truth. And many times in Scripture it says, as believers, we have come to the knowledge of the truth. And so we are people of the truth, and finally we are commanded to pursue after the truth as well. It is not because we have come to know the truth as believers that we automatically will never be deceived. We still need to pursue after the truth. And we looked at Proverbs 23, 23, buy truth, do not sell it, get wisdom and instruction and understanding. And that was kind of the big picture we talked about the importance of the truth. And today, we're going to be looking at one of the lies that we hear in the world around us. And we'll be looking at that soon. But before we did that, I wanted to point out another verse to you and have us look at this verse first. Again, reminding us why we're doing a series like this. And that's in Colossians 2.8. And I think that's a, a key verse that we looked at because it can show us that as believers, we can still be susceptible to lies, and we can still be misled. So we see here in Colossians 2.8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Now in this letter that Paul writes to the Colossian believers, he warns them quite a bit about false teaching. And after an inter introduction, he gives a greeting to them and a description of his own ministry. That's where he launches out with this verse in 2.8 to start this new section of warning against false teaching. And he starts this verse in the beginning there, see to it. He says, see to it, which means watch out or be on guard. Take heed of this. And Jesus used this same verb himself in Matthew 24, 4, and for the same reason. See to it that no one misleads you, that we need to watch out. Paul is warning the believers there, be careful, watch out, look out for this. And what is it that you need to look out for? That no one takes you captive. He wants to make sure that no one takes them captive. And to be taken captive, the word means to be carried off as plunder, or kidnapped, or to be abducted. That's the idea. So he's saying, watch out, don't get captured, or don't get kidnapped. Now, of course, this isn't a public service announcement for children that uh, watch out for being kidnapped. It's not physical capturing at all. He's talking about our minds. He's talking about how our thinking can get captured, and our thinking can be taken away. He says, what takes us captive here, it's through philosophy and empty deception. So this is where the battleground lies. This is how we might get captured, is in our thinking. Our thinking can go astray. And here's a whole church full of believers there that could so easily be led astray if they were not careful. So they had to watch out. They had to be careful about philosophy and empty deception. And philosophy can be any system of thought. We think of philosophy today, you have philosophy courses perhaps. At least I know I took a couple at UCLA, uh, philosophy classes. But the word here is much broader than that. It can refer to any system of thought, any system of thinking that can lead you astray. And it links here with the words empty deception, which is kind of a hollowness. It's, it's worthless trickery. It's Something that's of no value at all. And what Paul does in this phrase here, he uses um, 
they're linked together because there's one article then for both terms. He's saying these two come as a package, this philosophy that's full of empty deception. That's what we need to watch out for, this philosophy that's just a hollow sham. And as believers, if we're not careful, that can captivate us. So he describes then what is this philosophy and empty deception. He gives three descriptions, three according to's. First, it's according to the tradition of men. It's, it's not from God. It's strictly the teaching of men. That's where this is coming from. Is This deception is from men alone. And it's according to the principles of the world. Now, this is a somewhat tricky term. In the Greek, this um, elementary principles, it can refer to like just the building blocks or the alphabet. And it can mean, some believe, referring to spiritual beings or astrology. And that could be what he means, but I think more likely he's talking about just the basic things, simplistic things, or immature thinking, that we need to watch out for this philosophy that's immature in its thinking. But the third, and perhaps the most direct, is that this teaching is not according to Christ. It's not according to what Christ has shown us. And what the letter of Colossians so wonderfully does, it talks about the sufficiency of Christ. And it talks about who Christ is and what he's done. And when we understand Christ and really hold fast to Christ, then we can avoid this worldly philosophy that um, comes to us from the world around us. And every day, I think, we face... Ideas, worldly ideas, simple thinking, thinking not according to Christ from our world around us, whether it's from people we're friends with or whether it's from the world. But we can subtly let that kind of thinking infiltrate our thoughts. And we can, in our value judgments of what's important, in how we view other people or how we view events or how we make decisions, start to have a, a mindset that is not according to Christ, and it's just according to principles of this world. And the deceiver, of course, is very subtle. It doesn't come to us in a very obvious way most of the time. It's, it sounds kind of good sometimes. And there is sometimes even an element of truth to it, and yet it's a philosophy that will lead us away from Christ. And we need to be on guard Against that, against these lies, we must reject them. So again, what I want to do in this series is talk about some of those lies that we must identify and that we must reject in our thinking. And the first lie that I want to look at, the one we're going to look at today, is this. You are a victim. You're a victim. And that comes to us all the time, to see yourself as a victim. And again, the challenge is that, but wait a minute, aren't some people victims? Isn't there an element of truth to this? Yes, that is true. There are true victims in the world. There are people who abuse others physically, emotionally, financially. And in this fallen world that we live in, it is reality that there are abusers, oppressors, and that there are victims. That that is a truth in the world. And of course, God hates this. God hates true abuse in this world. And Zechariah 7, 9 to 10, it says, Thus the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother, and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Clearly, God speaks out against oppression. James 2.6 in the New Testament, we see this as well. But have you dishonored the poor man? Is not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Again, it does happen in this world, and there are real instances of suffering and abuse. There are children who suffer torture at the parents' who should be caring for them. There are those in authority who oppress others at times. That happens all over the world without a question. 
And certainly if this is an issue, this is something to bring to the leadership's attention, and we want to address that issue. But what I intend to talk about today is not the reality of some very legitimate abuse that must be corrected, but the mentality, a mindset of being a victim. The victim mentality that is so common is having a default attitude in your life where you always see yourself as a victim. Or if not always, your thoughts frequently go there. Well, I am a victim. And again, this is described often as a victim mentality. Now again, there's a difference between the victim mentality and being a victim. You can actually be a victim and not have a victim mentality. It's all about your thought process, all about your thinking. How are you processing the situation you're going through? A person cannot be a victim and yet have this victim mentality, always be feeling like they're a victim, like someone else is doing, them, doing something against them. And it's a very easy deception to fall into. And I'll tell you, not just as a pattern of life, there's some people, they always feel like they're a victim or throwing themselves a pity party and feeling sorry for themselves. And they're throwing pity parties so often, it's like they're an event coordinator, just always planning these pity parties for themselves. This is the victim mentality I'm talking about, to see yourself what the world is around you. So let me, let me further describe this victim mentality and why it's such an issue or what it is exactly. First, someone who has this mentality or thinks like this at times thinks the bad things in your life are not your fault, but because of what other people have done to you. Others are to blame for my life. The blame might be a friend. It might be a spouse the world in general and what the world has done to me, or, or perhaps even blaming God for the situation he's put you in. But in some way, others are to blame. It's not your fault. Secondly, situations are generally seen in the negative and beyond your control, and you deserve better than that. And that's often the thought process is looking at everything as an injustice. Everything that's happening to me it's not right. It's not right what's happening to me, and I'm suffering here because of what everyone else is doing. I am not to blame. It's what others are doing. And then thirdly, and this in some ways overlaps with the others, the world is viewed as what is happening to you. People are out to get me. It's all about me as the center and what is happening to me. And as you can see, as this is part of that mindset, it's narcissism. It's, it's this look at yourself, it's pride, as the Bible defines it. And that's what's at the heart of this. So, does this ring true at all to you? Have you seen this in others, perhaps at times? Or more importantly, have you seen this in yourself? Maybe not as a pattern of your life, although some do fall into a very ongoing pattern of seeing themselves as a victim constantly. But some of us just at times will want to feel sorry for ourselves, want to throw a little pity party. What about me? What are people doing to me? And it's, it's an attractive thing. You'd think, well, that's not, who would want to do that? No one wants to feel like a victim. No one wants that. That can't be something someone desires. Well, I, I think there's a number of reasons why that's attractive to kind of fall into that thinking. First, if you're a victim, well, then you're not responsible. If I see myself as a victim and say I don't have a, a good job, well, it's other people who are keeping me down. If my house is a mess, well, it's, it's others that are causing some so busy having to do their work. If you have a bad, uh, a lack of friends, well, it's because no one likes me. Um, if I get bad grades, it's all the teachers, you know, they all don't like me. You're a victim. And what it does is it, it aligns with our natural desire to justify our sin. We all tend to want to justify our sin, to make excuses for our sin. And when you're a victim, well, then you're not responsible. So, 
So it becomes something that's attractive. Secondly, victims receive empathy for their difficulty. Everyone can feel bad for you, or should feel bad for you. You're a victim. And so it's like, yeah, well, let me, let me see myself that way, and maybe I'll get more attention. And often it's associated also with feeling like a martyr or a hero because I endure such difficulty against myself. And those often go together, that same mindset. And, and again, don't misunderstand me. There are real victims and real things that need to be addressed. But there can be a mentality where you're always seeing yourself as on the short end of the stick and everyone needs to care for you. And then third, victims have the right to complain, or at least they feel like they have the right to complain. So if you call yourself a victim, well, then I can let everybody know how bad it is. I'm not complaining, don't get me wrong, I'm just sharing my heart with you. I'm just sharing what I'm going through, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying, that's one of my favorites. (laughs) Are you complaining? No, 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 I'm just saying. (laughs) Okay, sounds a lot like complaining. And I should point out, even the world recognizes the victim mentality as a problem. I mean, we can see it as Christians, but even the world sees that. The psychological community has written many books. You can find many web pages on the victim mentality. But what I think is interesting, uh, even in looking at one of those the other day, it says, you know, this can be a problem if it's a way of life, but we're all entitled to times where we can be like this. Well, no, not as believers, we're not. You're not entitled to times to be narcissistic, to be wanting to excuse what you've done and and not have responsibility. So this is sinful thinking that occurs all over the world. And my concern, and the reason we're even talking about it today, is I think each one of us can at times get sucked into this thinking ourselves. We can at times want to consider ourselves the victim. Now we see this in the world, uh, and taken a to a level that I don't think has happened in the past, and that's through what they call critical race theory. And I'm going to be very brief in talking about this uh, because I'm not super well read on it, but I've read enough to know some of the major tenets of it. And what has happened in critical race theory? is that they have divided up the world into two groups, the oppressors and the victims. And it labels you as one of the two. Either you're a victim or you are an oppressor. So what it's doing, it's taking this victim mentality and then mainstreaming it, putting it out there for everybody to to feel like they have to fit into one of these two categories. And it's certainly, in this case, critical race theory. It's saying two categories of race. Those races who are oppressors and those who are victims. Now, to be clear, racism is sinful. Absolutely. We don't deny that racism is sinful. We don't deny that it exists. There has been historic racism. There is still racist acts that happen today. And that is something God absolutely hates. So don't misunderstand that that is pretended like that has never happened or that it's not still happening. It does. But just as victims still exist and a victim mentality takes it where it is all the time you're a victim, the critical race theory is doing very much the same thing. It's taking incidents of racist victimization and turns it into a racist victim mentality. And this... This is taking this victim mentality that even the world says is a problem and now is saying people are justified in in having that viewpoint. So we can see the problems if, if a theory, critical race theory, embraces something like this that we should stay away from. But again, my intent for today is not to just look at the world and say, look at that, it's so bad that this is happening out there. My concern is that we are sometimes captivated, that Colossians 2.8, see to it that you're not captured by this type of thinking in your own life. Now, maybe it's not race and feeling you're a victim because of your race. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But maybe it's because of your spouse or because of your children or your life in some way. 
So the question is, do you play the victim at times? Do you fall into this thinking? Do any of these sound like something that might go through your mind? The credit card company is the reason I'm in debt. They made it too easy for me to spend the money I don't have. <laughs> what can I do? It's that credit card company. Or my parents are responsible, I'm so overweight. They let me have ice cream whenever I want it. And there are genuinely people who will say, it's my parents' fault for the bad habits that I have. And it's very easy to fall into this thinking, or my husband is the one to blame for my depression. He's so hard to live with, it just brings me down. Not as much laughing about that one, I know, because that hits a little closer to home. <laughs> or my wife is to blame, you know. Uh, I, I think we can see, we can fall into this thinking as well. And we need to be so careful that we don't think of ourselves constantly as the victim. And again, it's so easy to do because it provides an excuse for our sin. So this lie that I am a victim, others are to blame, it's not my fault, is something we need to guard against. Well, that's the lie out there. That's the lie that we want to be on our guard against that I want to warn you against. Now, what is the truth? What truth do we need to bring to bear to this from God's Word? And I'm gonna, we're going to start in Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, if you can open that, I won't have all the text on the screen. But one of the things we see with this victim mentality is that it's not new. This isn't something that came along with critical race theory and, well, see, that's where it all started. No, this, is, this has been around as long as sin has been around. So if you'll turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, and let's remind ourselves of what's going on here. This is obviously the creation account given in Genesis 1, creation of man and woman. And then we see in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, God gives a command to Adam and Eve. And it says, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. God's command was very clear. There was a tree they were not to eat from. They were to eat from any other tree. Any other tree they may eat freely. But that one tree they were not to eat from. Now, just like as when you tell your kid you can play with anything except that one toy, what does he do? Well, then I want that toy. Well... Adam and Eve, very similarly, went after the one tree. Let's start, pick it up in Genesis chapter 3, the verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Despite the very clear command from God that they were not to eat from that tree, they listened to the serpent. They were tempted, enticed by the fruit, it says, and chose to follow their own desire in rebellion against God. So what is the result then? What happens? Let's pick it up again in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid myself. So having disobeyed God's command then, Adam and Eve experienced shame for the very first time. 
Suddenly they had shame, shame about their nakedness and shame from spending time with God. They knew they had done wrong. They immediately knew and they were ashamed of what they had done. Now that's actually not a bad start. There should be shame when someone sins. But what should the next step be? Confession and repentance. But is that what happened? Is that what they did? Let's read on verses 11 to 13 then. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree in which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is it? What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. God confronts Adam and Eve on what they had done, and what is their immediate response? Wasn't my fault. (laughs) Blame. Blame somebody else. Adam was so quick to blame Eve. Eve gave it to me. She's the one who gave it to me. And even worse than that, what does he do? He blames God. God, it's your fault, really. If we're going to say who's really to blame here, God, you really got to take the blame of what has happened. And Eve doesn't respond any better. She says, the serpent that deceived me, and I ate the serpent, is the one to blame. The very first two people on this planet immediately fall into this trap of not taking responsibility, saying someone else is to blame, and instead... They're saying, I'm, I'm a victim here. God, I'm a, I'm a victim of the woman you gave me. I'm a victim of what you did in making this woman. And Eve said, it's the serpent. I'm a victim of the serpent's deception. And we may also be tempted to do the same thing. But you say, Adam and Eve, what fools they were. How could they do that? Huh, I would never do that. Ah. Uh, I would have repented immediately. I would have immediately said, no, no, that's my fault, and repented. And yet, do we do this at times? Do we think, I may have yelled at my wife, but you should have heard what she said first. Yes, I was angry with my husband, but he is such a jerk. It's my parents' fault that my life turned out this way. Well, perhaps I'm critical of others, but that's just my personality. (laughs) Basically saying, God made me like this, so that's what's going to happen. Or, I know I'm complaining, but you don't know how bad it's been for me. Again, blaming God for what has happened. And our sinful nature is so quick to want to play the victim, to want to blame someone else for what we have done. And it's especially enticing when we can legitimately point to something that's been done against us. There are times where someone will sin against you. If it hasn't happened yet today, uh, wait till this afternoon um, (laughs) or tomorrow, but you will get sinned against. It's not that in any way we can say, well, you know, no one's ever the victim of something. But we can say, do I... Should I be thinking of myself in such terms that I'm not responsible, that someone's to blame, or woe is me throwing a pity party for when something happens, rather than responding in a way that honors the Lord? And we need to remember that no matter what happens to us in our life, you are not responsible for what someone else's actions are, but you are responsible for your own. How do you respond? What do you do? Romans 14, 12, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. You will personally give an account of yourself to God. And how you respond, even if someone says unkind words to you, even when someone mistreats you, how you respond to them is what you'll be accountable for before God for. So why is the victim mentality then so harmful? If we see that it's, it's been around, it's part of sin so often, why is it harmful? Well, first, the victim mentality strikes out against the gospel. 
Specifically, it's antithetical to Scripture's teaching on sin. Scripture says, all men have sinned. And Scripture reminds us that when we sin, we are supposed to go to God. And particularly as you think for an unbeliever, when he sees his own sin as, but I'm the victim of things, it will in turn diminish his view of his own sin and not see it for the filthiness that it is. And when you do not have a strong grasp of your own sin, then why do I need a Savior? If I'm not as bad as all that, then why do I need a Savior? And therefore, what happens is that sin is an obstacle to the gospel. Just a few days ago, three nights ago, there was an elders meeting, and and Pastor MacArthur was sharing a little bit about uh, some evidences of CRT out there, and he made this quote which I thought was so timely. He says, when you turn the sinner into a victim, you cut him off from the gospel. And that is, in large part, when we see in our society that large groups of people are told that you're just the victim, you're not to blame. It's saying, well, if I'm not to blame, then why do I need to be forgiven? So you're cutting them off from the gospel. And that is such a terribly dangerous thing. And that's part of what makes... Critical race theory so so harmful, or other critical theories, is when it, sh- when it says you're not to blame that you're a victim, that they won't look to a savior. But not only does it harmful to unbelievers and cutting them off for the gospel, but the victim mentality works against our own sanctification as believers. As believers, we are harmed when we start thinking this way ourselves. Now, sanctification is a process. It starts at salvation, starts when you're justified, that you become sanctified, the scripture says. There is a new person, you're regenerated. But then it's also a process throughout your Christian life. And there's ongoing. Turn to Romans, if you would, Romans chapter 6. I want to look at a few verses there in Romans that remind us of what our relationship is as believers to sin. How do we interact with sin in this world and in our lives? So look at Romans 6. Uh, We're going to start in verse 5. In verse 5 we read this, For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is free from sin. And Romans 6 goes on to describe this as well, talking about how we are dead to sin, how sin does not have power over us. And it is such an encouraging chapter to be reminded of this, and that we have died to sin, that it is not our master. And Yet, we're also reminded in this chapter, if you look down in verse 12, that we need to continue to fight sin in our lives. Verse 12 and 13. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. As believers, you have been freed from the penalty of sin, and we rejoice in that, that we will not be held to account of that. We rejoice in that we're freed from the power of sin, that we're not obligated to sin, that we can live righteously. But it still requires that we are vigilant against sin in our personal lives, that we are not to present our mortal body to sin, the members of our body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. We must still strive against sin in our daily life. And if we're having to strive against sin, that means there still is sin to strive against. And that means there's still something to repent of. And it's not that you are not to blame because you are when you sin. And in a lot of ways, as a believer, since we're not under the power of sin, we don't have to We've got to realize we're choosing to sin every time that we disobey the Lord. 
We are choosing rebellion in that moment. And that should grieve us as believers. It should grieve us deeply. And this isn't just sin in general. Turn to Colossians 3. I think um, while it's important that we understand conceptually, big picture about sin, that we're to fight against sin, and sin is something we, we war against in our lives, it's helpful for us often to think of specific sins. What sins are we talking about that we need to put to death? And Scripture gives much of that to us as well. Colossians 3, 5-8 to reads this way. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Ranger, I'm sorry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. So all of these things, these specific things, we need to put them aside or put them to death in our life. We must be striving towards Christ-likeness. And recognizing this is our task as children of God to put these things to death, what happens when you start seeing situations through the lens of a victim mentality? When you start adopting this worldview in your own life as a believer and see yourself as a victim and not to blame for sin, will you then put that sin to death? Well, probably not, because it's not really your sin. It's that other person's sin. And so when we see this, see ourselves as the victim and not the one to blame, we're not going to grow in sanctification as we need to do. In some way, to some degree in your own life, when you see yourself as the victim and not the perpetrator of the problem, you will not see sin in all its filthiness, and you will not, therefore, toss it aside and strive towards holiness. You will not take the pains that are needed to kill sin, as you should. So therefore, a victim mentality is so harmful because it works against the doctrine of justification and unbelievers seeing their sin and coming to Christ. And it also works against their own sanctification because it lessens the evilness of sin in our own lives and won't, and then degradates our drive to holiness. So if that's the case then, okay, here's, here's the sin, here's the problem, here's the reason it's so harmful, how do we respond then? What do you do? You, you might be sitting there and say, well, it doesn't always happen to me, but sometimes I see myself throwing pity parties and thinking of myself and that others are to blame and not myself. How do I respond and what do I do? First thing you need to do in your response is to do a heavy self-evaluation. Really examine your own heart and perhaps even talk to your spouse about it. Do you see me doing this? Do you see this in my life or your mom or dad or your child or someone, a good friend? Do you see me slipping into this in some way? And they may see it or they may not. You may be doing it so subtly that they're not even aware that's in your thinking. But you can ask yourself these questions. Do you make excuses for sin in your life? Do you ever excuse your behavior toward your spouse if he or she has done something unkind toward you? Do you often view others as following either into one camp, so either being sympathetic with you or just someone who's making life difficult for you? It's all a self-focus. Are these people who are helping me or are they working against me? That's part of the victim mentality. Or do you occasionally allow yourself a measure of self-pity or complaining in your heart about what God has allowed into your life? Ask yourself these questions. Examine your heart. Do I at times get captivated by this philosophy and empty deception of the world? Do I get drug into this? And if you can say, even a sometimes to one of these 
then let me give you four ways that we can combat this in our thinking. First, take responsibility for your actions. Take responsibility for everything that you do. You are responsible for your actions before God, no matter what someone else does. 2 Corinthians 5.10 reminds us that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Unless someone else has done something against them, then it's not their fault. No, it doesn't have that, does it? It's not, it doesn't give an excuse unless you're the victim. You are responsible for what you do, the deeds of the body. Even in the most difficult situations, if you're a believer, you can speak and act in a way that honors God, no matter what the difficult situation is. You may very legitimately be a victim in some way, but that doesn't mean you have to throw a pity party, have this mentality that woe is me for everything that's happening. You can have the right attitude, and you can take responsibility first for your own sin. And any reasoning that is, but he did this, but she did this, but that person did this, you need to take that out because no matter what they do, how you respond, God will give you the strength. If you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit within you and the, and the power of sin is broken, you can respond rightly. So first, take responsibility for your actions. Secondly, be passionate about the gospel. And I want to look briefly at, at Philippians chapter 1. So if you could turn there, I want to walk through this passage because I think it's such an excellent example of someone who was very much facing difficult times, very much a victim in many ways, and yet did not have a victim mentality. The Apostle Paul had a pretty rough life, and I'm sure you're aware of this, and we have looked at this in the past, but I want to look at especially what he writes to the Philippian believers here. And we'll look at chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Paul writes to them, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ out of envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I will rejoice. Here is Paul in prison. Here is Paul suffering there, and it's because some Jews uh, falsely accused him in Jerusalem, and then he's gone through all these long imprisonments, shipwrecks, all kinds of difficulty, and here he is now, chained to another man, sitting in prison, and he could have said, I am a victim of these circumstances. Can you? He's writing to his church that he's very close with. If you read the rest of Philippians, you see there's a very tight bond between Paul and this church. And he could have just shared his heart with them saying, oh, it's been so hard. You have no idea. It has been so bad. First this happened, then this happened. But Paul does not do that. What does he say in verse 12? My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Paul is so focused on seeing people come to know Christ, seeing the gospel come out, that his own circumstances, his own trials, hardly get a passing mention here. He just, yeah, yeah, that's happening. But you know what? The gospel's going out. And people are, people are coming to know Christ. Even he says uh, the cause of Christ has become well-known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. He's been sharing the gospel inside jail, and he doesn't worry so much about what's happening to him. It's not this inward focus. It's what is, how is God using this for the gospel? He sees his life, his circumstances, as an opportunity 
to share the gospel no matter what happens. That is very much the opposite of victim mentality. If you're so focused on the gospel and seeing it proclaimed no matter what happens to you, you're gonna have, you'll forget about your own problems because you're going to care about the truth going out. But not only were his circumstances, we read later in this passage how some were preaching, causing, trying to cause Paul distress in his imprisonment, that their motives were envy and strife. <clears throat> Again, Paul could have taken the victim mentality. It's like, God, you made me a preacher, and now I'm in jail. These guys are preaching, you know, just kind of gotten down about it. But he doesn't do that. He says, the gospel is going out. That was his great desire. And if you maintain that as your great desire, and if you're so focused on others knowing Christ, then a focus on yourself and your own problems is going to fade into the background. How passionate are you about the gospel? How much is that on your mind, or how much is your mind on what has happened to me and what are my problems? So, one of the cures to the victim mentality is be passionate about the gospel. Third, focus on loving others. So this goes along with the last one, but is more directed towards those believers around you. What are the needs of those in this group in your Bible study? Is there anyone that has a financial need, perhaps, or other need in your group? You may say, well, I don't know. Well, that might be the starting place. Are you asking? Are you getting to know them? Are you so focused on self that you haven't even asked? Is there someone you could talk to on a Sunday morning that may need hurt or encouragement? Have you reached out to someone this morning, or do you make that a practice of finding out, hey, how's someone doing, and anything I could do to encourage or to help you? And certainly with new people here as well, do we reach out and want to encourage them? Say, hey, thank you for coming. Is there anything I can help you or show you around or anything like that? Of course, it also extends to any kind of service that we do, any service in the church where you're not focusing on yourself. The victim mentality is a self-focus. And as believers, we need to run from that. We need to have an other's focus. We need to say, how can I serve? How can I love others? And how can I bring the gospel to those who don't know Christ as well? And then fourth and finally... What is the solution or response? Consider the example of Christ. Set your mind on Christ. Look to Christ and what he has done. Christ was certainly a victim. There's been no, no one who more rightly can be said a victim than Christ because no sin had ever entered his life. Not one word, not one act. Everything negative that happened to him was not because of something sinful that he did. And yet, he responded rightly. Think of the different difficulties that Christ faced. He was born in a stable, and even as an adult, had no place to lay his head. He suffered at the hands of those he created. He was mocked by so many, even his own family thought he might be crazy. Religious leaders hated him and stirred the people up against him. His trial was a sham, a complete miscarriage of justice. And then he was crucified for the sins of others, not one sin of his own. He had definitely faced the kind of difficulties where you would say he is a victim. And yet, do we see him feeling sorry for himself? For saying, oh, be sympathetic with me, come on, see my difficulty? Did he respond with complaint or depression? Or was Christ always loving others, always reaching out? We see what Christ did. Instead of playing the victim, he maintained the attitude of a humble servant. He focused on the gospel, on spreading the gospel, even when he was weary. John 4, the woman at the well, he was weary, and yet he didn't focus on that. He was focusing on sharing the gospel with this lady. He joyfully endured suffering. He never responded in sin, no matter what anyone did. He even prayed that God would forgive those others and that he gave up his life for us. 
And so if we want to avoid this victim mentality, again, we need to watch out. We need to be on guard against it. In order to do that, one of the great ways is to look to Christ. Continue to consider, okay, if Christ did not complain when that happened, if he did not wallow in self-pity, why am I doing that? Now you may say, well, I'm not Christ, of course. Well, God has given you his Holy Spirit, and you don't have to sin anymore. You do not have to wallow in pity. As we see ourselves slipping into this thinking at time, remember these things. Take responsibility for your actions. Don't blame others. Don't ever say it's what someone else has done. Be passionate about the gospel. re how the gospel is going out. How frequent is that on my mind? Love others. Think of how you can serve others. And certainly look to Christ. And in these ways, we can get the mind off self and toward others, and not be sucked into this empty philosophy that not only will damage your testimony, not only will allow you to stay in sin, but it's going to steal your joy as well. We would think, oh, having a victim mentality, that's no fun. Why would anyone do it? Well, we sometimes do stupid things. <laughs> and we think, well, at least, at least I'll get sympathy. But the real joy comes from loving others, serving others, to seeing others come to know Christ as well. May that be our passion. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Most of all, for Christ, we see what he did on our behalf when he did not deserve the punishment that he received. Lord, he did not play the victim, but he continued to honor you, obey you, Lord, and for joy set before him endured the cross. Father, I pray that each one of us, as we are tempted at times to fall into this victim mentality, that we would remember what your word says, remember these truths, remember how such a mentality dishonors you, and instead think on Christ in our daily lives. We pray this in his name. Amen.